While you are here, you will see what I saw coming out of prison after 27 years. That our people are still hewers of wood and the drawers of water. That our people know only hunger, disease, poverty, and violence. That in the decades of apartheid rule, we were reduced to beggars in our own land. We are on the eve of great changes that place enormous responsibilities on all our shoulders. We know that you will march this last mile with us. We know you will help us reconstruct a South Africa in the vision of the Freedom Charter as a country that belongs to all its people, black and white. <laughs> Close to the sprawling black township of Soweto, southwest of Johannesburg in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, president of the African National Congress, addresses anti-apartheid activists from around the world. The ANC has made an agreement with its former enemy, the National Party government, which it is hoped will lead to free elections by early next year, in which, for the first time, South Africa's 35 million or so blacks will have a vote. The agreement has already turned history on its head, has brought together the oppressor, the oppressed, and those who suffered imprisonment, exclusion and exile for their belief in non-racialism. Marius Schoon is one such person, jailed from 1964 till 76, in exile since then till 1991. He and his family now live near where he was born in Johannesburg, then a white suburb, now slowly becoming mixed. This is the story of today's South Africa, told around the past, present and projected future of Marius Schoon, white Afrikaner and member of the African National Congress. Now here on our right we see the playing fields of Jeppe High School, the school where I went to, the preparatory school that Fritzi and Lulu are going to at the moment. This is actually where I grew up. Uh, my father was the vice principal of the school. Uh, for most of my childhood, we lived in one of the school in one of the school hostels, which I'll show you later. This part of Belgravia uh, has become a very very mixed area. There will be a large number of black people having moved in here. Uh, parts of it, as you can see here on the left, are starting to look a little bit like urban decay. But uh, I think that this is an area which is going to revitalize itself. This place on the left is actually where I was born. This used to be uh, a nursing home, a maternity nursing home called The Norman. Uh, it looks now as though it's been divided up into flats. When we turn, turn here into Main Street, you'll see 
the Johannesburg skyline, you'll see the Carlton, uh, the wealth of Johannesburg has unfortunately gone into building big buildings rather than creating jobs for, for our people. The school where they're going is Jeppe Prep, it's the school I went to myself, it's the school that Fritzi's mother Jenny went to, uh, my mother actually taught there for a time, so we feel that we have very deep ties with the schools in the area and with the area as a whole. Now this is where the boys get out. Boys? Bye-bye, love. Huh? On this day, Marius drops his son Fritzi to school, along with Klulu Muklati, currently living with the Schoons, son of an African activist of the ANC. Two boys, one black, one white, now at the same school in Johannesburg, another of South Africa's rapid changes. But Marius Schoon has suffered more than just imprisonment for his political beliefs. After jail, he married and left secretly for Botswana with his wife, Jenny. There, Katrain and Fritzi were born. But South African agents were on their trail. The family moved to Angola. It was what happened there in June 1984 that was to result in Marius and Fritzi coming to Ireland where RTE listeners first met him in a documentary called Murder at Lubango. This is how that programme began. All shall be equal before the law. All shall enjoy equal human rights. There shall be weapon security. The doors of learning and culture shall be open. There shall be housing security and comfort. There shall be peace and friendship. These freedoms we will fight for side by side throughout our lives until we have won our liberty. <laughs> six-year-old daughter Katrain were killed on the 28th of June in Lubango in Angola when a bomb exploded in our flat. A devastating explosion. I saw the flat the next day. It looked as though an artillery shell had hit it. The whole flat was destroyed. All the glass was blow blown out into the street. Jenny had her head blown off in the explosion. Katrain just disintegrated completely because the bomb went off right next to her. I was in Luanda at the time. I was given the news at about 6 o'clock on the night of the 28th by the chief representative of the African National Congress of South Africa in Luanda. It's quite clear that Fritz saw the carnage in the room immediately after the explosion. There is a possibility that he was in fact in the flat at the time. He might have been playing on the corridor just outside the flat, but he was in very, very close proximity to the explosion. As regards the effect that it's had on him, he was clearly very, very shattered. It was difficult to get anything coherent out of him. It was difficult for one to talk to him at all. And in fact, when we were going from the airport into Lubango, the only coherent thing he really said to me was, the enemy didn't kill my mummy. 
the enemy just broke her into pieces. We have shared mountains of tears. We have shared oceans of blood. No more tears, no more peace. We will cross the rivers of blood. No more tears, no more peace. We will cross the rivers of blood. Over 300 years of injustice, what we have had is wait, patience. Over 300 years of oppression, all we have experienced is repression, repression, and more repression. Since I came out of prison, I've received a series of death threats through the telephone, through the post. Jenny has been threatened with death. A parcel bomb has been delivered to her father's house in Johannesburg off shortly after we went into exile. We were forced to leave Botswana because we were told that our lives were in danger there as South African agents were likely to act against us. Jenny and I have both spent our whole adult life in active opposition to the South African government. One does not place explosives of that quantity to create a, an explosion of that ferocity unless you actually are the enemy. And the enemy that Jenny and I have is the racist South African state. Marius Schoon in Dublin in February 1985, a resilient man with a political determination which overcame his human loss. At that time, he nourished few hopes of returning home. Here, he met and married Sherry McLean. They spent some time in Tanzania at an ANC school, but Ireland seemed likely to be home. I think that exile was obviously very difficult for Marius. It's not really until I've come to South Africa that I realize how difficult exile must have been for him. For example, even though he had quite a few friends in, in Dublin, <clears throat> it, was, it was not having a reference point of meeting with other South Africans, being able to discuss various aspects of South Africa, um, having memories, for example, and missing, missing his country, missing the familiarity of his country, missing the f familiarity of, say, Johannesburg and Cape Town, where he lived for a while. Despite all the brave words that one said on public platforms in Europe, in Africa, I think I'd come to believe that I was actually never going to be coming home. I think even though uh, my thoughts and my aspirations were with home, until possibly 1990. 1990, I think I started seeing that things were actually moving, that we were going to be coming home. It just looked as though this logjam of the apartheid system was never going, to never going to allow those of us who were in exile to go home. The release of Nelson Mandela from 27 years of imprisonment and the unbanning of the ANC and other organisations changed all that. The international campaign against apartheid added to the complete rejection of the system by the overwhelming majority of the population forced the capitulation of the regimen codified since 1948. 
But by 1989, the edges of apartheid's heartland were beginning to fray. Yanni Momberg is a wealthy Afrikaner. He owns a wine estate in the Cape. He served the National Party for 30 years, but his disillusion grew. He was elected to Parliament for the Democratic Party, a more liberal white organisation. He is now an ANC member. What really changed me was in 1989, in July 89, uh, three of us candidates for the, for, the, for, the, for the Parliament then went to see the ANC leadership in Lusaka. Met the ANC leadership and for the first time met brothers and sisters with which I could relate. And I knew that they, that first night I knew I, I was never going to be the same again. And uh, when they came back out of, uh, after the 2nd of February, you could meet up with them again. Uh, it just strengthened the belief that I belong with them. But I think the, the one main, two factors I really think that pushed me into the ANC was one meeting Mr. Mandela in person. I was privileged he stayed in my house uh, one night and uh, addressed a few meetings there. Uh, and the man himself with no bitterness. Uh, I say it openly, I love him like I could never, like the father who I lost many, many years ago. The other important thing, of course, is, is, is my guilt that I carry inside me for apartheid. Uh, it's sometimes still a, an overwhelming feeling of guilt that I've worked for these people for 30 years, I voted for them. By having joined the ANC, I think I, in a small way, way I could put right what I did wrong for so many years. of Soweto. Out of the crucible warrior army of New Age, despising gas, bases, bullets, defying centuries of slavery, advancing without care on armored cars, striking battles with clenched fists. The warrior cry, the ANC cry, Amandla, power. In 1991, the government indemnified Marius Gunn against further charge. He could come home. I came in June of 91, and I came and I spent basically the whole month here. I had a little scrappy piece of paper issued by the South African Embassy in London, which had been procured for me from our office in London, uh, saying that I was uh, returning home after having been in exile. And I've travelled on scrappy pieces of paper before, and I was expecting the most enormous hassle. And I came up to the immigration official and gave him this piece of paper from the embassy. And he looked at it and he said to me, uh, uh, Mr. Skoon, you're a returning exile. And I said, that's right. And he said, welcome home. I hope things go well for you. And I walked through. I felt quite astounded. I hadn't expected it to be like that. I had expected that there was still going to be all the old bureaucratic hassle. Home after 27 years. Home to what was already being called, a little too soon, the new South Africa. That first visit was made to look for a job. The places that I thought I would be looking for a job would have been what had previously been the alternative structures. Structures which had been grown up, many of them 
during the time of the UDF, in fact, as part of the, part of the struggle. And I think on day three, when I was back in South Africa in June of 91, I was having lunch, or I was having dinner with Barbara Hogan and Barbara Mosakela, who had been the Secretary for Culture in the ANC and is now working as personal assistant to Comrade Mandela. And I was talking about jobs to the two Barbaras. I was saying, well, you know, I was going to look in this NGO and in this structure or in that structure. And the two of them stopped me. They said, Marius, that's not where we're at anymore. We want you working in a mainline structure where you can actually be having an influence on things. And the two of them said to me, you know, the place that we really want you to be working is the development bank. Uh, I would never have thought of applying for a job at the bank. And basically during the month that I was in Johannesburg, I was having a series of, uh, of interviews with the development bank. And I found, much to my surprise, that a large number of the young Afrikaners that I was talking to in the bank were seeing the future of the country not very differently from what I was seeing it. And I came to realize that, in fact, I would feel, even though there were aspects of the bank's work that I would still regard with considerable suspicion, I came to realize that I would actually feel quite comfortable working there. Marius now knows what it is to come back to the future. The Development Bank of South Africa was the tool through which the apartheid state fed one of its most cruel creations, the Bantustans, the arid tribal homelands to which Africans were ascribed lest they felt a sense of permanence in the 87% of the land owned by the white minority and in which blacks resided only as workers. But some of the white staff of the bank, seeing the economy crumble as disinvestment bit and loan sources were cut off, were also signing up for the new South Africa. Solly Nertke is Marius's boss. The bank was born in sin, so to speak, uh, and, and there's no denial of that. Um, we, however, as an institution within ourselves, um, right from the beginning took a lead, I would like to say, in, in changing directions in South Africa, in changing um, the views of people um, and to bring to the fore the economic impact of, of the political uh, dispensation as it stood at that time. Um, and because of that, we have made quite um, dramatic uh, statements about our feelings of, of the, pol the political system and the way it impacts on, on the economic uh, system in South Africa. I think uh, our, our late uh, chief executive, Dr. Brandt, was most probably the leader in taking uh, the view of, of the impact of uh, apartheid. Um, and, and he brought out quite a number of these issues. Uh, for instance, you know, the, the fact that people could not recite where they wanted, the fact that people couldn't work where they wanted to. Um, and and the, the negative uh, impact of this on, on the whole economic system in South Africa. When Marius came, to me specifically for a job, um, I immediately recognized a lot of expertise, a lot of experience that would be very applicable to the circumstances in South Africa. Uh, that was at the time when, when the political dispensation was also changing substantially and, and when exiles were allowed back into the country. 
Um, and I, I think his appointment was met with a lot of skepticism, skepticism in, in initial stages. Um, but at a very early stage, there, there was a, a, a tremendous recognition for Marius and the role that he's playing. Um, and this role has just, uh, you know, grown into something which I don't believe people would like to be without at the moment. Marius's job is to put the bank in touch with the people. Its past was in funding infrastructure in bankrupt homelands. Its future is in aiding the development of communities. And community organisations with which it is now building relationships have ANC members as their backbone. Brian Maleffi is the link for Marius and the Development Bank with the 46 constituent organisations of the Northern Transvaal Regional Development Forum. The Northern Transvaal region is a very poor region. Uh, it is a region where we have 4.5 million people, 97% of whom are African people living under rural conditions. Uh, it is a an area where the migrant labor system uh, taps labor from to come and work in Johannesburg, in the mines and so on. So there is extreme poverty. There has not been an attempt by the government, any significant attempt to develop the areas uh, such that uh, we find that we have the highest population of women and children because men of uh, uh, working age have gone to work in Johannesburg. So it is women and children who are actually faced with uh, poverty, the what we sometimes say is a protracted encounter with hopelessness because there is no employment. The land has been taken away. We have three homelands uh, that make 30% of the land which in which African people are living in. 97% of the population has, are living on 30% of the land and uh, there is no industry, there is nothing. The homelands are Venda, Gazankulu and Leboa. Uh, parts of Kwandebele, in terms of our definition of the Northern Transvaal, uh, f uh, fall in falls into the Northern Transvaal. Uh, these are administrations that were set up uh, under the old apartheid order, uh, where Africans were not uh, permitted to be citizens of South Africa technically, but had to belong to a specific homeland. And uh, where if you cause trouble, for example, in the uh, in the urban areas, you would have to be sent back. Uh, I was, for example, born in Pretoria, but uh, when I was uh, of age to go and get a pass, I had to specify from which chief and from which rural area I came from, just in case I gave problems in the future uh, so that I could be deported back to the homelands. But Brian Molefi is now more comfortable dealing with those he once rejected. We were introduced to the top management of the bank, uh, some time ago by Maria Skuon, immediately when he started working to the bank. Uh, he identified us and took us to the bank management. And uh, since then, we have been able to take them out to the Northern Transvaal, something that they have uh, never done before, they had never done before, despite the fact that uh, they were controlling large amounts of resources meant for that area. They had never really quite went and seen how our people live there. And uh, we took them on a tour of the Northern Transvaal, and they were pretty shaken. And uh, that is why I think it was possible for people like Marius to get them to have a change of heart in as far as certain aspects are concerned. Uh, right now, the Northern Transvaal Regional Development Forum might be getting assistance from the bank. This was inconceivable a few years ago, that a structure such as ours, uh, especially where a structure that was initiated by the ANC itself uh, would get funding from the from the government uh, 
bank, such as the Development Bank. Mario Schoon tells the story of that first ever management visit to Northern Transvaal. This to me was my success for last year. Brown took us into a village to meet somebody where the community leader was a comrade who'd been sentenced to something like 137 years on the island, uh, who'd been released in the amnesty only a few months previously. And uh, he was clearly a community leader. There were people coming into the yard all the time to talk to him. There was fodder piled up in the corner of the yard, which was being bought cooperatively for people in the village. A big village, a village, I would say, of possibly 30,000 people. And during the time that we were there, myself and my manager, Solinokia, we were told casually, oh, well, of course, there's no water anymore. This is in the middle of possibly the worst drought that the country's ever had. There is a good borehole with permanent good water. But the magistrate came along in a Land Rover with armed police, and they have taken the pump. I saw Solly was not altogether taken with this as a remark. People now had to walk, what, something like eight kilometres to go and fetch water with, with women carrying it on their heads. Going home in the aircraft, uh, Solly said to me, uh, so you're going to write a report about what we've seen and what we've been doing these two days? I said, sure. He says, and you're going to mention the village where the pump was? which has been taken away. And I said, I would be intending to include it in the report. He said, I want it as the first paragraph in the report, and I want that part of your report on my desk before half past ten tomorrow morning. And I came in, I gave him the report. He said to me, sit down, I'm going to make a phone call that I want you to hear. And he phoned the chief minister of the particular homeland. The bank has immediate access to the Bantustan bureaucracy and the Bantustan uh, so-called political leadership. And they had what was a very polite conversation to begin with. And then he said to him, Chief Minister, I just want to read to you uh, a paragraph from a report that is on my desk at the moment, something that I saw in your Bantustan yesterday. And he read to him word for word what I, ha what I had written about the pump and the pump no longer being there and the magistrate coming to take it and the fact that the community leader was a very respected ANC member, my supposition that the pump had been taken away because of that. And he said to him, I just want to bring this to your attention. And he put the phone down. Now, I think the pump was restored in something like 10 days. Solid Norke. Uh, we, we've been concentrating all the, along on the economical aspects of things and, and what we believe are the sound, rational economic approaches towards uh, economic development in South Africa. Uh, if in that process we stepped onto toes, which I think we did in many instances, for instance also on the land uh, reform issues and stuff like that, uh, so be it. But we, we tried to maintain uh, our credibility by saying the same things all along. 
And yes, I think in, in many instances we've been an embarrassment to the South African government. We do have the system of, of the so-called regional governments, the, the homeland governments, uh, which obviously uh, is not in the first instance always very effective and, and uh, is not always serving the needs of the population to the extent that, that they would like to make out that they are doing. Um, and what I experienced in that area was the lack of, of, of legitimacy with those governments, the lack of represent, representation of the people in the day-to-day -day activities of the government. Uh, in South Africa, it is becoming uh, more and more important to involve the people in the development process, to get ownership for the development process with the people. Um, and, and these homeland governments just don't have the legitimacy for that. So that's the good news. Some structures which supported apartheid are trying to cast it off. The agreement between the African National Congress and the government is now the subject of negotiation between all parties. But the big two have agreed. Hope is in the air. At least it was before the assassination of ANC and Communist Party leader Chris Haney, an important figure in the liberation movement, an icon for many of the young. But increased violence had been widely predicted in the run-up to a settlement. Nerve must be held. Violence must not stop the appointment of a transitional executive council to prepare the way for elections. A constituent assembly chosen by universal suffrage should then formulate a new constitution while a government of national unity runs the country. But from the violent streets of South Africa's cities and from the impoverished rural areas, that view, if not seen as starry-eyed, is at least approached with caution. Living in South Africa has not been easy, nor has returning to it or coming there for the first time. Sherry McLean, Marius' wife, was a social worker in Dublin. South Africa's less developed structures have made comparable work difficult to find. For me, it's been very difficult. Uh, as I said earlier, it's only now that I'm un understanding how difficult exile is. Quite apart from having to get used to a totally new geographical setting, weather conditions, things like that, I think the whole thing of not, not having anybody who knows you, you're not able to say, oh, remember this, or you know so-and-so, or whatever. That's, that can be very alienating, and one can feel very isolated. But you have the added thing of apartheid, of the daily horrors that you see, the way, for example, blacks are treated. Um, not only that, there's the constant media, the news that, that comes in. For example, just a, a kilometer away from our house, six people will have been thrown off a train. Being that close, or that the violence is that tangible. And the boys we left earlier at school, Fritzi and Klulu, how do they find it? both born abroad during their parents' exile, coming home to a strange land of which they've heard in their young lives so much negative comment. Fritzi Schoen, too young at the time to recall verbally the horror of the murder of his mother and sister by the bomb, which missed him. Well, it's okay, but I think the people aren't as friendly as they were in Ireland, and I just don't seem to be settling in. I'm beginning to settle in now. At school, I've made friends. I've had to change twice. And I've just made friends again. And I just don't think people are as friendly and as talkative. And Clulu McClatty, born in Swaziland, raised in Spain, now separated from his homeland-based parents to allow him a better education in the city. 
it's okay, but um, I I enjoy Spain a bit more because I felt free and I could do anything. I was allowed to go on buses, and the children were not racist like they are here. And here, they 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 say kafir that means black and stupid thing, uh, stupid black. A boy said that twice to me, and I. I just went to tell the teacher and the teacher asked him, is it true? And he says, no, it's not true. And then a day after he comes back to me and says, I'm sorry. And then um, few, a month a month goes past and then he come, uh, we play cricket. And something happened with him and he called me Kaffir again. So, so they're quite racist and I don't feel safe in South Africa than I felt in Spain. People read and hear about the changes in South Africa. Um, they convince, in many instances, um, in most instances, uh, people that they married uh, overseas, their kids that have never been to South Africa, that this is home and that they should come home here. Yeah. Um, but when they are faced with a situation here, yeah, um, in many instances, people find it very difficult to acclimatize, to accustom, to accustomize themselves uh, to, and to associate with the system. Uh, and in many instances also the apartheid uh, um, is still rife in our schools. Um, so that when people get exposed to this, uh, they just um, question the, the correctness of, of the decision to come back home. There's no new South Africa yet. Okay, you can see blacks and whites on a double-decker bus together, but they're not communicating. Um, Unemployment is still very high. You see whites treating blacks abominably. You can go into the local shop and there can be four black people a ahead of you. And the shopkeeper will say, yes, madam. So that every day something happens. Every day something happens to remind you that no, fundamental changes are, are not here. On a political level, of course, things are shifting, I mean, the, with the talks and, and things like that, but basically, if you go in, into any of the communities, for example, you still see it there. The other thing that I'm learning a lot more is that apartheid has such pervasive levels. It is uh, a, a tremendous pressure on such a person, such as Marius, for instance, to, to on a continuous basis, convince his family uh, of the fact that the long-term objective is more important than the sacrifices that they are making at the moment uh, in staying in South Africa and um, I think uh, one can only admire the the uh, tremendous feeling with such people um, and the the need for them to make a contribution to a future South Africa um, and and that we can only hope that, that because of, of their inputs, we will be able to su be successful in the end and, and uh, to become a normalized society. So I was going in summer to back to Ireland for about a month and I think I'll be going with her. So it'll be a nice holiday for you? Mm, yes. And by then maybe you'll be settled in here? Mm, I don't think so. Not fully. Well, are you looking forward in the long run to living in the new South Africa with the new government? Yes, well, sort of, but I haven't seen anything of the new South Africa that's been said it's supposed to be. For, 
in six months so i don't really know whether i'm looking forward to it or whether it's going to be the same i watched tv with fritzy and Klulu, passionate in their support for the still all white south african cricket team in their matches against pakistan and the west indies they are already settling though their memories are slow to let go but they will in the future have doubts the road to democracy is pitted with the dangers of the rutted dirt tracks of the homelands rather than the ease of the straight four-lane highways which run between the once white cities a major hurdle will be to limit the inevitable violence which will accompany the process. There's much at stake for those like the comfortable whites who claim that only poverty, not wealth, can be shared. For those blacks who believe that with the vote comes the Mercedes and the garden swimming pool. For the political groupings who have a mistaken view of their own centrality. And for the political leaders who must, for the sake of the country, share the fruits of victory with those who persecuted them. Marius Schoon is one South African who has put the past behind him. Twelve lost years in jail, 15 in exile. In Dublin, in 1985, he felt unforgiven by his own people. There are certain sections of the South African security forces who have a particular and almost a personal hatred for me because I too am an Afrikaner and I am therefore regarded as a traitor. Well, now Marius forgives them. And slowly, Township Jazz replaces the protest song as the drumbeat of South Africa. And as negotiations for democracy continue, we hear hope and caution in the words of Soli Nertke, who worked for the old system but recognises the need for the new, of Brian Malefi, who longs to inherit the earth, of Yanni Momberg, MP, who realises that those they said were to be his cures of wood and drawers of water are in fact his brothers and sisters, and of Marius Schoen, who has come back to the future. I think in the first instance, I did recognise the skills and the experience of Marius, and I employed him for that, and not necessarily for where he comes from and, and, and uh, the contribution that he has made to the liberation movement. Uh, in the end, I think it was a risk, uh, but a risk that, that uh, really benefited this organisation substantially and tremendously. Um, I think we both have gained uh, and, and uh, benefited from, from uh, taking that risk. And it obviously has changed both myself and the organization also. I am very positive about the future of South Africa. For me, the fact that racism is going away, that apartheid is going away, is enough to make me very ecstatic. And, uh, however, we do have very serious problems in as far as the economy is concerned. We have a budget deficit that is increasing and uh, that a new government would have to fund by either borrowing or by increasing taxes or the tax base and that might create very serious problems, uh, instability and so on. But uh, despite these problems, the fact that apartheid is going away and that for the first time African people will be able to vote for a government of their choice makes us very happy, very ecstatic and positive. We will have to temper these expectations all the time because at the end of the day, the, the, the people believe that Mandela is a messiah 
was going to come and walk on the water and within one night going to give him a house and all these things. And the people will have to understand that even after the first election, two, 20 years down the road maybe, we're still going to pay for the legacy of apartheid. The wealth which could have built a secure future for all of us has been stolen and squandered as though we've been dealing with medieval robber barons. And when I see the statistics that go over my desk, the problems as regards education, as regards housing, as regards some measure of economic and agricultural equality, we no longer have the resources to be able to do it. We are going to be a poor country for the foreseeable future, but at least if there is peace, we can start thinking about development. But the type of destabilization that is going on in Natal, here in the PWV, in, uh, in the Pretoria Department for Inneching Triangle, it makes thoughts of development absolutely impossible. And our hopes for the future, I think, are for peace, a democratic elected government which is responsible for development and accountable to our communities. And then I think we can start not only with our own development, but assisting in the integration of development of the whole of the Southern African region. And uh, I think we must realize we're not a rich country anymore. Our wealth has been squandered, and yet I think that with the energy that can be released from the South African people, we can make the most enormous steps forward in the next 10 years, if there is peace. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.